This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Helen is off this week, so it's just me and Nina. We're doing Quirrell, and I'll kick us off. Quirrell came out in 1982. It's Rena Vanna Fassbender's final film, and it's based on a 1947 novel by Jean Genet. Genet was a criminal and wrote the novel during a stretch when he was in and out of prison. He very nearly got a life sentence in 1949, but it was set aside because Jean-Paul Sartre and Pablo Picasso admired his work and advocated on his behalf. In the ensuing decades, Genet got involved with the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the Black Panthers, and the Red Army Faction. He advocated for the interests of Algerian immigrants. He interacted with Angela Davis, Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, many of the big names of his era. Quirrell is the main character in both the novel and the film. He's a sailor who sells opium, has sex with men, and, from time to time, commits murder. The film is particularly interested in the question of what motivates men to have sex with men. Today, this is considered an inappropriate question to ask. Our society has settled on the explanation that homosexuality is strictly biological in the same way that heterosexuality is biological. Some men are, by nature, attracted to other men, and that's as far as it goes. This film is deeply sympathetic to homosexuality, but it does not seem certain that we have a good answer to the question of why it is that some men are gay. At the very least, it is interested in the ways gay men explain their sexuality to themselves and to each other. Why does Quirrell deliberately lose a dice game so as to allow himself to be sodomized? Why is Quirrell attracted to a man who reminds him of his brother? Why does he betray the same man so soon after they get together? Why is the lieutenant in love with Quirrell? In between sexual encounters, the characters discuss their motivations with each other. Sometimes their thoughts play as narration, as they try to explain themselves to the audience. But their explanations never feel complete or airtight. They are jumping off points, invitations to supplement the characters' suggestions with your own theories. When this film came out, there was a lot of disagreement about this question. A film that depicts gay men in a sympathetic light and invites you to think about why they do what they do can, in the context of 1982, be construed as socially progressive. But if you were to watch the film in 2023, and you had no idea who Jean Genet was, you might encounter it as a reactionary piece. Here, homosexuality is not associated with bourgeois gay couples, but with the lumpen proletariat, the seedy underbelly of society, that class that Genet himself comes from. It is a class that those with the time and space to write treat almost exclusively as pathological. If you're in the habit of thinking of the lumpen proletariat as sick or debased, this will all too easily leak into your reading of the film. If there is a straightforward didactic reading of the film, it might be something like this. Quirrell loves his brother, but they are also rivals. This creates a level of estrangement between them. Quirrell loves men in an effort to close this gap. But because he is also in the habit of viewing his brother as a rival, he also tends to view his male lovers in the same way. So, Quirrell tends to kill the thing he loves. He loves and then double-crosses men who remind him of his unsatisfying relationship with his brother. At points, he actively seeks to have himself punished for his behavior by these men in a manner analogous to the way in which his brother once would have physically disciplined him. In these ways, unresolved issues with the brother manifest in Quirrell as homosexuality. This renders homosexuality a consequence of the difficult circumstances in which Quirrell and his brother grew up. But even if this is the film's explanation for Quirrell's sexuality, it need not be straightforwardly applied to the other characters in the film. For instance, there is a man called Nono, who is married to a woman who runs a brothel. Nono tries to have sex with the men who have sex with his wife, so he can say that his wife only sleeps with our souls. Nono is regularly cuckolded as a matter of course. For him, homosexuality allows him to regain some of the control he otherwise forfeits. In both of these cases, homosexuality is not naturalized, but is treated as a consequence of psychology. But though homosexuality is psychologized, it is not pathologized. Genet and Fassbender do not object to homosexuality, but they do entertain the idea that our upbringing and experiences factor into it. In recent years, gay marriage was politically achieved in large part by shelving these interpretations in favor of a naturalistic explanation that straightforwardly eliminates the possibility of homosexuality as a lifestyle. 
It is now regarded as an orientation rather than as a set of choices produced in whole or in part by one's circumstances. Challenging this interpretation seems to implicitly challenge what that interpretation was used to politically achieve, and so it has become politically impossible for a person who supports gay rights to think of homosexuality as anything other than a biological category. But because this is a film from 40 years ago, a film from outside this political context, it is not beholden to the limitations our politics imposes. Why do some men have sex with other men? Personally, I don't think I know the answer to that question. I don't think the question ought to have the normative and political importance it has acquired over the years. The process by which gay men become gay has no bearing on how we ought to treat them. In 2004, President Bush used the possibility of gay marriage as a specter to terrify conservative Americans into supporting him. I remember being a middle schooler in Indiana, arguing with the other kids about politics. I said there was nothing wrong with being gay, that there was nothing wrong with gay marriage. The other kids surmised that I must be gay. If not, why would I defend gay people? It became one of the reasons I got bullied as a kid, though it was never the most important reason. The most important reason I got bullied is that I had a bad habit of telling the other kids they were stupid. It was the fact that I was contemptuous of them, not my beliefs or opinions in themselves, that got me in so much hot water when I was a kid. It's important not to have contempt for other people. It's a life lesson I try to remember with varying levels of success. I don't see anything wrong with being gay, and I don't think it matters why some men have sex with men while other men do not. I'm just not that interested in sexuality. I don't think it's the most important thing about a person. For these reasons, I can't say I found the substance of the film particularly interesting. It does, however, throw into sharp relief the fact that we are no longer able to think about certain questions for political reasons, questions that were, within living memory, very much on the table. It makes me think about the other areas of life in which this might apply. For instance, in the New York Times review of Quirrell, published in 1983, the reviewer, the famous Vincent Canby, spends a substantial portion of his review on the class background of Genet and Fassbender. He writes that while Genet was truly classless and essentially stateless, Fassbender was a true product of the bourgeoisie. Canby suggests that this class difference makes it difficult for Fassbender to adapt Genet's novel for the screen. Genet shares Quirrell's class background, but Fassbender does not. When class outsiders adopt the work of class insiders, something is very often lost in translation. It doesn't always happen, but it very often does. This struck me as a pretty neat insight for a film critic to have, particularly a film critic writing in the pages of the New York Times. But then this was 1983, and in 1983 it was possible to have mainstream American writers engage in class analysis. Those possibilities have been foreclosed. Most references to class are now immediately drowned in accusations of class reductionism. There is a closing up of what questions can be asked, of what can be said, and it cuts many ways. Anywho, let's see what Nina has to say. Very good. I liked your um, your opener uh, very much indeed. Um, I agree with you about the questions that can and can't be asked and I think that the history of cinema and literature as potentially under siege as it is in some ways um, still remains to us this great resource for uh, remembering when certain questions weren't yet answered um, or weren't even necessarily posed um, or, or in the process of being posed and you know, there's many things to say about Quirrell. Quirrell is, is actually one of my favourite films. <laughs> of all of the films that I've seen multiple times, there are three films which I uh, watch over and over again, uh, one of which is Cronenberg's Crash, um, the other of which is Pasolini's Theorem, perhaps more than any other, and uh, the third of which is Quirrell by Fassbinder. Um, and... It's a complicated question for me why I find this film so alluring um, because it's, uh, in, well, Fassbinder is an extraordinary director. I mean, this was his final film. He dies at the age of uh, 37, I think. He dies the year that Quirrell is um, finished in 1982. 
Um, he has a heart attack brought on by uh, drug use or drug drug abuse and or drug overdose or something like this. Um, he was kind of notoriously wild as a character, um, and you know clearly shares something with Shanae, albeit not the class background, but something that I might call like the axiom of Quarell and perhaps the axiom of of Shanae, uh, which has inspired many gay filmmakers uh, in particular, which would be the the idea that homosexuality equals criminality and that criminality equals homosexuality or that there's a kind of fundamental um, relation or, or co-terminus between homosexuality and crime, um, which is, which is, I think, ultimately Genet's, uh proposal or axiom, the thing that kind of underlies all of his work, um, which is, which is a, as you say, from today's point of view, a very scandalous thing to claim, you know, this, this, basically proposes that there is no normalizing, there is no normative value in homosexuality, um, but that by its very nature, it is outside of the law, whether we're talking about psychoanalytic uh, laws or criminal laws. And obviously this film, Quarelle, um, and the novel is very much about the indeterminacy of male violence whether it's sexual violence or violence against one another, whether it's the rivalry between the brothers, which in the first scene or one of the first scenes, they both, they greet each other with a hug, but also a punch, you know? And, and I think one of the things I like about this film is you can never really tell what a man is going to do next because there is this kind of coiled violence in men or in the masculinity that uh, Fassbinder presents. And this is a very, insane vision of the world right like this is a stage this you don't know where it is there is no real place i mean there's a bar feria uh Quirrell is sort of uh breast which is sort of a pace in in france but it's the state this the staging of of this film is demented uh, i read somewhere and i couldn't find it i was trying to find the reference but that that fassbinder at this point towards the end of his life was extremely addicted to a particular kind of cough medicine that made him hallucinate uh, extremely vivid colours, like a cough syrup or something that probably had some kind of, uh, you know, maybe benzo or, or some sort of opioid or something. And that this hallucination, that these hallucinations he was experiencing, he tried to mimic in Quirrell. So the colours are completely um, uh, hallucinogenic. It's a kind of uh, very weird uh, technicolour, uh, somewhere between a horror film and a kind of... Um, a sort of romance. Uh, the the setting uh, for the 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 film is a is a bizarre, also hallucination. It's a, it's a kind of a fortress that has various phallic symbols. Uh, you know, sort of giant cocks everywhere. Cocks are on the d- doors. Everyone's drawing cocks. Uh, it's this kind of you know uh, totally homosexual universe, apart from uh, the Jean Moreau character who is. Lysiane, uh, um, who uh, plays the the owner of the brothel, as you said, and uh, uh, Jean Moreau, I think, is one of the greatest uh, actresses, and I, she's fantastic in this film. She died in two thousand seventeen, um, at quite a great age. Um, I think she's extraordinary in this film. What she portrays to me is uh, what happens to to femaleness when a world is 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 dominated by male homosexuality and male violence and male rivalry and male mirroring. And lots of Fassbinder's films are about this doubling and mirroring and everything is through glass or in a mirror or you you don't see things dead on often. Um, And many of the characters, like the brothers in this film, are also doubles, um, which causes this uh, absolute uh, proximate rivalry, which then, as you say, can can play out violently um, in multiple different ways, right? So, so that you know, and I'm not saying that therefore that all of the depictions of sex in the film are violent, but there is this kind of roll of the dice, and the dice are this kind of key element, um, this kind of contingency to male behaviour. Perhaps this is what one of the things I find absolutely uh, fascinating because. I'm very, you know, I, I wrote a book about men, obviously. I'm very, very interested in masculinity. I'm very, very interested in this particular question about um, what men are 
uh, are like without women or what they are like at the extremes um, and why male behaviour um, uh, can be so extreme in terms of its kind of uh, violent um, valence. And again, this is not to say that I think men are therefore violent or anything like that, but that there is a kind of difference in the way that men relate to violence um, as a sort of potentiality. And this is, this is, I, I think, what, what, what both Shanae and Fassbinder are fascinated um, by. And it's not reducible merely to homosexuality, even though homosexuality and criminality are linked. But I think it's to do with this um, almost like the garden of forking parts in terms of male behaviour in, in the kind of unpredictable um, nature of it, whether it's going to be, uh, you know, dangerous um, or not. Um, and it's also kind of transcendent. Querelle is described as an angel, an angel of the apocalypse at one point by the uh, lieutenant who is in love with him, who is the kind of romantic uh, character, if you like. Um, and I think this this link between kind of sex and death um, is is kind of pursued all the way through. And I recently went to see a, docu- uh, a film, sorry, by Bruce LaBruce, who is a uh, very important 90s uh, queer cinema director, gay man, uh, who made a film called Hustler White, which also owes a lot to Genet. And in that film, he tries to capture the reality of life as a gay male hustler on um, uh, Santa Monica Boulevard in Hollywood in the 90s. Uh, And it's a very extreme and explicit film. And it's also a film that has not a single woman character in it, so even fewer women than, than Fassbinder's image. Um, and he did that deliberately, you know, even women walking in the background, he cut out, you know, so that the, the entire film is just, just men. Um, it's kind of this unbridled masculinity as a, as a form of kind of, uh, you know, bivalent violence. It's kind of either be murder or sex, let's say. Um, I was looking back at, uh, the, the excellent, uh, biography of, uh, Jean Genet by Edmund White, um, which is very interesting, as is Sartre's book. You mentioned Sartre earlier. Sartre wrote a book called Saint, uh, Saint Genet as well. Um, and it's interesting what Evan White says about the Fassbinder film. He thinks it's the only film that um, is able to capture Genet, like of all of the attempts to make a film about Genet's work, that Fassbinder is the only one who gets it. Um, and he gets it in the sense that it's partly to do with these kind of fragments uh, and uh, Edmund White says that when Shanae was asked about Fassbinder's film, um, Shanae said he didn't remember the, uh, the the story of, of in his book at all. Like he didn't care. Like he didn't, there was no, uh, he didn't remember even really writing the book. He didn't remember the plot. Uh, so Fassbinder in a way um, takes, it's very much his impression of the book. It's not faithful uh, other than to its core premises, I think. Uh, Genet didn't bother to go to see Fassbinder's film because he said you can't smoke at the cinema. Uh, you know, it's, it's just all of this endlessly sort of stylish uh, thing. <laughs> um, you know, and but this was a very successful film when it came out. So, so Edmund White writes about the film selling more than 100,000 tickets in the first three weeks in Paris, you know, and it was the first successful film to um to deal directly with homosexual themes so this was a big deal right imagine in early 80s paris like going to see this cool film which is kind of of indeterminate uh placement you know it's kind of franco german european you know it's sort of weird like it's not anywhere right it's not from anywhere it's you know it's it's just completely uh bizarre um I'd like to make a special mention for the soundtrack, which I think is one of the things that attracts me to this film um, over and over again. It's a, it's a strange soundtrack by Pierre Rabban and David Albach. Uh, it, it generates a kind of, uh, apart from the very important song, which is Each Man Kills the Thing He Loves, which is uh, sung by um, Jean Moreau, which is based on a line from Oscar Wilde. And again, I think this, this idea of... Um, death and love and sex just being kind of intimately um, coordinated. But the pathos with which she sings this song, Each Man Kills the Thing He Loves, uh, I think is incredible. And the soundtrack is also very brooding. It's very electronic. Um, There's a very interesting scene where the uh, 
somebody is playing a video game, like one of those old fashioned video games, like a racing game, but like that you had in bars and they have one in the bar and it makes all these kind of noise noises and it's being played over a kind of more traditional folk song and it creates this huge dissonance um, and this absolute kind of strange, strange apocalyptic cough syrup vision uh, of the world. Um, there are also these moments of... Uh, strange flashes of uh, crucifixion. You see the Calvary at one point where the three thieves and Christ are carrying, the two thieves and Christ are carrying crosses, but everyone's in drag. And it's it's very it's very reminiscent of like soft cell videos from this time from Derek Jarman's imagery. Uh, and yeah, I, 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 I don't know, but I, I find myself very uh, intrigued and, and, and sort of perpetually drawn to, to this film. And I think, um, apart from this question of the absence of women, um, and at one point the Jean Moreau character says, uh, you know, I'm just a woman, you know, you don't care about me, you know, I'm just a woman, right? I'm not, I, you know, I don't feature in your worldview. Um, and, you know, when Quirrell and his brother are fighting, there's a line that where where one of them says, "We, I think Quirrell, we mustn't lose ourselves in an all too perfect unity. And I think this is the, the one of the premises of the this idea of this vision of homosexuality, that homosexuality is, as Freud suggested, a form of narcissism and mirroring and, and a, a kind of um, uh, a sort of closed loop, right? Uh, which again is a potentially kind of controversial thing to say uh, today. But I think um, Fassbinder very much pursues this idea that there is something um, fundamentally uh, uh, about reflection um, in homosexuality, that the, the absence of difference and the absence of women generates not only particular forms of femininity in men, which is something that they discuss in the bar when Lysian looks over at Nono and says he's almost feminine, you know, when he's when he's not involved with women at all. That, um, that men themselves take on aspects of femininity um, when they are in uh, relation to one another. Um, but I think this kind of desire for uh, merging um, in the homosexual vision that Fassbinder portrays is different from the preservation of difference in, in sexual difference um, as uh, understood in, in heterosexuality and, and as understood by Fassbinder as well. Um, that the heterosexuality and homosexuality are different in that way. Um, and I think uh, just to finish, in the when they look at the newspaper and there have been these various murders that have been committed by Quirrell and others, uh, usually for no real reason, just generally random or because of an insult or a slight, um, the, 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 the heading in the newspaper that's reporting on the crimes, um, the headline is, series of murders without end uh, and I think in a way this is this is Janae's great great fantasy um, that Fassbinder tries to perpetuate which is you know what what is it to try to uh, maintain this kind of vision of violence heightened violence um, as a series of murders without end you know and to make it into something um, very beautiful uh, which I which I think is what what Corel is is um, ultimately about. Fascinating. I have to say, I'm very interested in why you like it so much. <laughs> um, yeah, I, when I read around the reviews for this film, it was very mixed. Yeah. Yeah. Very mixed reviews overall. Uh, clearly, it was scandalous enough to attract substantial attention, almost regardless of the reviews. Uh, but the, the reviewers themselves seem to be very torn up about it. And I uh, find very interesting your point that, you know, Forget all that class stuff. Janae and Fassbender totally make sense together. Uh, yeah, I, I'm under the impression, and you clearly know more about this film than these guys than I do. Uh, I'm under the impression that both of them themselves were, if not gay, bisexual. Is that right? Um. I, yeah, I, I don't know the details. I mean, I guess we remember Janae as a, you know, overwhelmingly homosexual i mean that's the thing this is this is the thing one of the problems with the way we talk about it because we we now well we sort of have a just well do we make a distinction between an identity and an act i mean you know a homosexual act is one thing and a definition a self-definition is another right like 
you know, obviously. Yeah, I, I'm not necessarily asking if they self-identify. No, sure. Just, are, were they known to do it? Um, yeah, uh, you know, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, Fassbinder was in love with uh, the guy who plays Ali in Fear Eats the Soul, which is a fantastic Fassbinder film which is a kind of melodrama about a relationship between a black immigrant in Germany and an older uh, German woman. Um, and I think uh, this guy was Moroccan. He, uh, uh, like, I guess quite a few people in that scene ends up committing suicide in jail. Uh, and Genet, I mean, Edmund White says that many people around, many of the men around Genet also end up killing themselves. I remember reading about Sinead being in love with a, a tightrope walk, walker or a trapeze artist, a beautiful young man who was engaged in this kind of extraordinary daring, feats of daring. And um, when this young man hurt himself and he could no longer perform, Sinead just dropped him, you know. And these kind of these forms of kind of casual cruelty that are based on perhaps an aesthetic mode of living, um, I guess, dominate, predominate what, what we know of, like, um, these biographies. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I, I wonder, you know, I'm, I'm quite interested in this idea of, of whether, you know, what men without women are like, right. You know, and I don't want to intrude. I like have no interest in, you know, I, I, you know, I don't, I don't want to be in men's spaces. I don't, I don't, you know, I, I, I think that men and women should have their own separate spaces at various points. You know, I think the, the world is very mixed, uh, a lot of the time and I think um, sometimes it's good just to be with your with your own sex um, you know not not in a sexual way <laughs> just, there's uh, always that question of what goes on in the space that by definition if you were in would not exist right yeah it, exactly so and I think that yeah it, you know so so the world of prison you know the male prison obviously Janae writes a lot in prison um, you know and these kind of liminal places, I guess we would say, like the, you know, we, we there is this deep attachment between um, the sea and the, you know, the Navy and men together and, you know, uh, sort of uh, love and sexuality and murder and violence and, um, you know, yeah, and, and then these kind of crimes of drug trafficking or, you know, threatening people, the brothel, gambling, drinking. <laughs> um, I suppose, uh, you know, homosexuality as an identity is no longer non-normative, we, we could say, right, in, in contemporary Western society. And, th and this indeed is what many of the groups push for. So, so a group like Stonewall in the UK pushed for gay marriage and they, were, and they, and they got it, right, under a conservative government, in fact, um, and many people were very opposed to Stonewall, actually, at the time, because they said that Stonewall was like normative, it's like normie, you know, this is not what homosexuality is about. And you, then you start to get the separation between the idea of queer and the idea of gay, you know, and, and now lots lots of gay uh, men and women are often attacked, you know, by the trans movement for um let's say, sticking to an idea of, of sexual identity that is predicated on sex itself, right? So the idea that homosexuality is about same-sex attraction. It's not about how you identify. It's about, like you say, an orientation that can't be changed so that one is gay, one is simply gay. Um, you know, and, and obviously a lot of uh, gay people, men in particular, are very successful, right? They're often quite rich, you know? They're often very, uh, do very well. Um, so the class angle, uh, you know, again, is perhaps uh, removed or lessened to some extent. When homosexuality itself is a crime, I mean, it's not really surprising in a way that it then gets associated with criminality. I mean, there's a banal way of putting the homosexuality and crime thing, which is simply to say, well, it used to be a crime, you know, in and of itself. And of course, then you would find this um, dominating, you know, in, in those sort of liminal places. Um, One I thing I, yeah. I found interesting in what you laid out 
if it is the case that the view here is that homosexuality is in some way a narcissistic behavior. But Janae and Fassbender engaged in this behavior, then they seem to be saying that they engage in a behavior that they regard as narcissistic. If that's the case, is the attitude that uh, narcissism is not as pathological as it's made out to be, or is it a kind of self-critique, a kind of being ashamed of the self and, and one's own behavior that's going on here? And of course, from the contemporary standpoint, if it's the latter, then the suggestion would be that this is a kind of internalized hatred. Yeah, for sure. And I, I'm sure you could level that critique um, at, at Fassbinder, at Genet, at Bruce LaBruce, whoever you wanted to. I, but I don't think it would hold up Um not least because I think there is a kind of explicitness in Genet and Fassbinder and, and others, which is authentic, right? Which is to say something like, no, this is really how it is, right? That This is not straightforwardly a problem. It might be a question, but it's not, and it, and it might be pathological, but it is very beautiful in its own way. Um, and that this is kind of how this position unfolds it's so it's not that it's not the kind of idea that um either we must cure this pathology which might be a kind of um orthodox uh i don't know psychotherapeutic uh approach to homosexuality which is oh it's a problem of of development that can be corrected what we now call conversion therapy i suppose um but for a long time homosexuality was perceived in this way right as something non-normative as something kind of pathological that could be potentially be remedied um ultimately concluding in celibacy or a switch to heterosexuality um and i think there are bits in freud which both point in that direction and bits that point against it so freud can be read you know both as 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 almost demanding a a normative heterosexuality, but also um, defending to some extent the unnatural nature, as it were, of human sexuality as such, right? Freud in the three essays on sexuality points out that the vast majority of human sexual behavior is strictly speaking perverse, which is to say it doesn't result in or has anything to do with reproduction. So a kiss is perverse, Right on its own terms, uh, it's not reproductive. It doesn't have any. You could say, well, it might lead to da 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 da. Right, but um, in and of itself, most of our sexual behaviour doesn't make sense. Human beings are well. Women are not fertile all the time, for example. But but men and women have sex, you know, regardless of fertility. Right? It's not you know, sex is not purely for reproduction. Um, and we've totally gone into that idea, right? Like we now live in a culture which completely detaches sex and reproduction, right? So we, the pill is invented in the early 60s. Um, you know, you no longer, women are no longer bound, let's say. Uh, <laughs> many downsides to the pill too, let's be clear. But in principle, you could say we've completely detached as a culture through these various reproductive technologies, the relationship between sex and reproduction. So, in a way, the homosexuality um, that is depicted in these films, whilst it is also about violence and criminality, is also about a world in which um, there is no reproduction at that level. You know, there is no human reproduction. Um, and I suppose the question becomes, what is, what is that world? Um, and we, we actually do kind of live in a, in a queer universe <laughs> in many ways. Now, because sex is, I would say, primarily conceived in our culture, as it were, as um, not to do with reproduction, but rather to do with, who knows, a whole host of other other things. Yeah, this makes me think about something. It might be tangential, and you cut me off if it's if it's too outside the park. But I've been uh, looking over GEM to, to St. Quas, The Class Struggle in the Ancient Greek World. In that book, he classifies reproduction as a 
type of production and therefore women as an economic class on the basis that they're the class that performs reproduction. Mm. It made me think, you know, if you have a kind of critique of instrumentality of things that are done in the service of other ends, but not as ends in themselves, that that might lead you to a critique of reproduction on the grounds that uh, it's sex that is for some further purpose rather than for its own sake. And if you are really <laughs> committed to sex positivity, really committed to it, then you would only really value sex for its own sake uh, and not the instrumental kind of sex that is reproductive. And I wonder if, if perhaps there's something of that going on. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I think Plato has this problem in the in Phaedrus, in a way, because obviously he's sort of saying, don't confuse the beauty of the boy with beauty, right? Like, don't get stuck, as it were, right? You can go higher. Um, and the beauty of the boy is, uh, I don't know, a fleeting is, you know, but but it's not, it's not the form of beauty. It, it points you to a higher level. Um, but at the same time, right, there is a, a love, right, in Phaedrus. There is, a, there is a depiction outside the city walls of a relationship of some kind, albeit um, one that is perhaps veiled in certain ways in the text, in the dialogue. Um, and, yeah, so, so I remember reading, studying Phaedrus at, at Warwick, um, in a philosophy and literature course with this great professor called Martin Warner. And we were talking precisely about this tension, if you like, between um, the relationship as a kind of vehicle to a higher level or the relationship in and of itself. And I remember making a similar point saying, well, aren't you using the person, you know, in the dialogue to get to a higher level? Like, what, what about simply loving them right for themselves right is isn't isn't that actually a more noble relation <laughs> um but it's it's sort of slightly tangential to your point but but you know you're saying well if sex is for something else aren't you treating it as a means to an end rather than as something in and of itself um as a form of intimacy or i i don't know what do people talk about um and i think obviously Kant realizes that this is a problem precisely that sexual relation is a problem in this way because it does mean instrumentalizing the other which is why he, he kind of uses the marriage contract to exempt people he says you know well it's the only time where you can mutually agree to the how does he put it like the contracting out of each other's genitals or something I mean it's really really horrible <laughs> bureaucratic language but in the sense that he's saying well okay yeah no actually um there is this mode of um, interacting, which is treating people as a means to an end and not as an end in themselves. Um, so I, I take your point very much about the, you know, what would non-teleological sexual relations look like? Or, I mean, you know, in a way they, that, that is what happens most of the time, let's say. Most, most sexual encounters don't result in anything further. Um, and in that sense, you could make a case for the one night stand being the, the most beautiful gesture of all in this uh, absolutely uh, in and of itself, this, this, this relating that is only itself, that has no other form. And I, I think maybe the, the form of male homosexuality or the homosexual act is depicted by, by Fassbinder in a way is an attempt to achieve this kind of beauty. Um, in the form of a, a fleeting encounter um, that leads to nothing and that, or that perhaps, you know, only could culminate in violence or, or uh, of one kind or another. Yeah. It's one of those, those instances where you kind of, I think a lot of people really like that idea in Kant that things ought to be valued for themselves and not as means. But there are cases where if you, if you take that, it, it starts to, to break down a little bit, sometimes instrumentality is part of life, and we can't completely refuse it. For sure. I know that there's that Derek Parfit revision that, well, you can't treat someone as a mere means. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, for sure. And I mean, if you think about it, we are constantly manipulating each other. We are constantly asking, or not even asking, implicitly expecting people to do things for us and we to do things for them. You know, it is an extremely complicated game of mutual, you know, relating, right? And I think, but I think I suppose I understand it almost psychoanalytically, which is to say, to break out of narcissism of one kind or another is to is to know that the other exists, right? Insofar as that is possible, and to understand that the other is a is a being like you, and and therefore like you, and you can by analogy or by extension understand that this person has feelings, and you know come to understand them in their specificity, um, just as you would want to be understood, and and maybe that that's the question of recognition, which is obviously central in Hegel. Um, in particular, um, and not so much in Kant. Um, but that process of recognition and mutuality is always, well, it can always potentially go wrong, and in fact it often goes wrong. Like we, we frequently misread a situation or we we misunderstand somebody's desire or we we think that someone will will react in a particular way and then they don't or they're in a bad way and you you say oh you're not like yourself but what does it mean you know do we have a set sort of if we have an image we have a working image of another right when we say things like oh you don't seem to be your usual self right but what what are we referring to a kind of stereotype about how the person seems to usually be simplified reduced to fit into your head but we do it all the time right yeah you, know, you have to yeah you need heuristics we we all do yeah I, i've often been drawn to the marxist emphasis on exploitation because it's a little bit more specific than not treating someone as a means mm. no for sure i mean i guess i'm referring primarily to i guess social and um, those forms of interactions, which also exist. Yeah. I mean, even under exploitation, I mean, that, that's what we, we, you know, we looked at Blue Collar, which is a very interesting film in this regard. Um, you know, a film about exploitation, about unions, about, yeah. but also about the relation. You know, like I, li- I like it that we can, of course, and we do, of course, use each other. But if the use of one another is, is not exploitative, if there's reciprocity, then... It falls within the range of, of what we as people who live in separate bodies and aren't all unified in the spirit world, you know, what we have to tolerate and accept. Uh, yeah. One thing I, I have often thought is if you have power, then the fact that you have power kind of demands that you exercise the power in a way which disproportionately benefits the one you have power over, that the way that you kind of make it right that you have power and someone doesn't is that you use the power to benefit the other a little bit at your expense. Hmm. Because power is is a good that you enjoy because they have to do what you want them to do on some level. Uh, sure. So the only thing that justifies them giving you power by obeying you is you using that power in a way which is but, ultimately to their benefit. But again, I think this is very complicated because when we talk about power, we often are referring to very different things or when we have an image of power. Because, I mean, you know, as Baudrillard points out in Seduction, you know, seduction is a power, right? And there is a power to the symbolic order. There's a power that belongs to the feminine in particular, which doesn't present itself in those kind of molar ways, which is yeah. to say... No, I think yeah. maybe it should be thought about a little bit more in that way. If, you know, if you mm-hmm. can seduce somebody and get them all mixed up in such a way that you can drive them in whatever direction you like, well, you ought to think about what's good for them when you do that. And it kind of gives you a little bit of an obligation to them to not put them in harm's way with that power. Well, yeah, but I mean, I guess sometimes, you know, women seduce without even meaning to, right? And that's a very complicated thing. You know, if a man is struck by the beauty of a woman, is it her, is it her responsibility for his 
that his feeling for his feelings. Okay. We all exploit without realizing we exploit. <laughs> yeah, that, that just because the capitalist doesn't know he's a capitalist doesn't mean that he does not exploit. Just because he refuses to read anything so that he can remain blissfully ignorant of his class position and its fundamentally exploitative character does not mean that he does not exploit. <laughs> no, for sure. But I mean, the capitalist at, at the very least has a an accounting book or, you know, is aware that he or she is the owner of the means of production and, you know... Uh, I think at this point, a lot of capitalists don't know what means of production means. <laughs> no, I, I'm sure you're right. Um, a lot of them would go, what on earth is that? Yeah, I, I mean, of course, you're you're correct. But I, I wonder if there's a difference between the power that one, at least on some level, knows one has. Right, let's say wealth would be an obvious one, right? Like money allows you to do things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And that other people can't do because they don't have money, right? And you can pay mm -hmm. for pretty much anything you want if you've got enough money. Um, and this is a power over the material world, right? But it's not without its costs too, right? Very rich people are often extremely unhappy, as we endlessly discuss on this program, um, amongst other things. And, you know, the question of redistribution and how we deal with that, how we deal with the excess, you know, obviously Bataille's question is this, you know, that the problem is not lack, it's surplus, you know, and it's it's the kind of une unequal distribution of excess that is the problem in many ways. Um, but I don't know, there is, there is a kind of power in powerlessness itself. There is a power in these molar categories of wealth and political influence and you know, and, and I, how they fit together is an endless question. I mean, just as when we think about Helen of Troy, you know, is this the face that launched a thousand ships? There's something very profound about this question, right, or this statement, because it reveals that the occasioning cause for extremely massive things might be not what you think it is. Right. So why why people go to war, why men go to war, why men do things is not always what they say it is, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I suppose there are cases where you don't know what's going on. And so as a result, you end up kind of enveloped with demands, like say you're a very beautiful person. And as a result large numbers of people uh, try to get with you and you have to let in invariably you have to let them down the way that you look has a power insofar as it compels them to be drawn to you, but you may encounter their being drawn to you as a burden and uh, you're having to say no to them as as a burden you know, sometimes sometimes people i suppose have power in ways that they find burdensome for sure. I mean, I mentioned before, oh, I mentioned before um, having a, you know, very beautiful younger friend at a particular point who was, you know, very attractive, um, but it was terrible for her, you know, even when she shaved her head, even when she dressed down, she was still very beautiful and people would pay attention to her all the time, regardless of whether she wanted it or not. And there is actually something kind of tragic about that that level of beauty, you know, that your beauty is <clears throat> not for one person, but somehow for the world, you know, and that you are the object cause of other people's desire and therefore the misery and therefore your own, you know, and I, I think we should, um, as a culture, remember that beauty is a curse, human beauty is a curse, not a blessing, and that people, you know, this culture that seems to... Uh, push for a particular image of beauty or a particular model of beauty which which everyone is supposed to emulate is actually creating uh i mean horrific scenarios actually and it's kind of demonic you know so that really if you're with somebody you should love them for who they are right like not to sound like a hippie but in their uni uniqueness their their uniqueness is their beauty their beauty is not looking like a particular 
image of what the culture says beauty looks like, which isn't actually beautiful at all at this particular point, but is actually rather horrible and mask-like and, and so on. So I, I think, you know, we need to recalibrate what we think beauty is as a power. But nevertheless, it's definitely true that you will occasionally meet people in the world who are shockingly, stunningly beautiful in a magnetic way. And it's very difficult for a culture to know how to deal with these people as well and for them to live in the world. Yeah, I, I do think it often depends on some of the other things that are going on. A very beautiful person who has the resources to deploy that as a power and to not be oppressed by it. Uh, I think there are some people who have the resources to use it rather than to just be abused by it. Uh, but certainly if you're in a weaker position, then being beautiful uh, isn't going to salvage that. And in many ways, it will make you uh, more compelling person to exploit for a lot of people. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, so by in and of itself, it, it isn't a guarantee of power. But I, I, was, I suppose I was thinking about it in the situations in which it is usable mm -hmm. in that kind of way. No, and it seems to me there are definitely some situations where it can be used that way and where some people have used it that way very successfully. But, of course, that's not everybody. No, no, for sure. And I mean, you know, the whole star system is kind of predicated on this, this sort of pantheon of, I don't know, um, images. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I've sort of to get back to the, to the film, I suppose, and like maybe this question of contingency um, with the dice roll, you know, it's very Malomé, very French idea, uh, you know, of how to understand contingency. And of course, Quirrell uh, fakes the dice roll, right? As you said, in order to um, to get Nono to to have sex with him, um, you know, and, and that kind of question of of desire, you know, is is also the desire for contingency, but also for fate. And I wonder sometimes when we when we think about sex, sometimes there's almost something like fateful about sexual attraction. You know, it has the the air of fate about it. Like when you, even in brief moments of passing where there's a flash of mutual attraction, let's say, which can seem surprising to both parties, right? And and let's say no one does anything about it, right? Like that's literally it. It's just like this, this frisson, this moment, right? But there is something kind of uh, fateful about that experience, both contingent and fateful, right? Because because I think the thing is, like, when we ha have a partner or we go out with somebody, right, why do we go out with this particular person, right? There, there are lots – you could give a list of reasons, but I don't think that would ever capture what it is that you love about them, right? You love this mysterious kernel that is them, that is, is sort of indescribable or inexhaustible, which is why you're perpetually interested in them. You know. Yeah, there is this tendency in a lot of uh, French thought to view love as a kind of truth that imposes itself that you can't really resist. Mm. I think it's contributed to the affair culture in France. <laughs> you know, if you just happen to be compelled by somebody, well, then you have to have an affair with them. And anybody who doesn't understand this just doesn't understand the, the power of love and what it makes people do. I. I'm not convinced by that argument. No. But it does seem to have really caught on in France. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, this question came up in The Whale, you know, when the, the whole question of him leaving his wife for the younger man, you know, was, was the dilemma, if you like, or one of the dilemmas of the, the film, because he obviously had duties, he had responsibilities, which he threw over in favor of of love, quote, unquote. As, like you say, this idea of love that is a good in itself that must be pursued because, you know, of these contingent, fateful aspects. And I, I agree that this is, you know, I, I, I argued in favour of duty. I, I said he should have stayed with his wife and child. Um, and maybe this is an age thing, but I think there is a kind of pragmatism after a certain point where you, you are like, well, actually, it's not a good idea to pursue like, every frisson of attraction uh, in fact, in, in, in many ways, it's actually a very bad idea, uh, not least because 
you know, you might already have responsibilities uh, that are bigger than that uh, desire. Um, but also, frankly, because it would take up too much time. You know, like who has time to endlessly pursue every <laughs> every last like free song? Like nobody does. Well, and the idea that you ought to be dragged along by whatever comes along, you're not really living the... Yeah, this is where I think Plato in the Phaedrus does have a good point. If yeah. you just get dragged along by every every person who comes along that looks good to you, you know, <laughs> life is not in your control in any meaningful sense. No. Yeah, and this is... You talk about the contingency of male behavior. This is why in so much of male philosophy, there's this emphasis on you have to rule yourself, mm -hmm. you have to have a sense of, of self-control. You know, it's in Plato and in Gandhi and in uh, so many different theorists where the, the beginning of everything is, you know, for Gandhi, it's it's Swaraj. You can't possibly be the nonviolent civil resistor if you don't have this self-control, this ability not to become violent in situations which would ordinarily produce male violence. Yeah. You have to not be violent. Uh, and that requires this incredible discipline. And so there's this this constant emphasis on discipline, which sometimes gets exaggerated into a kind of stoic, yeah. uh, desist from the passions, uh, don't live in the body at all, uh, don't be at all subject to, to nature, be virtuous regardless of the conditions, you can be better <laughs> than the world around you, you know, hubris and pride that comes with a, an excess of this. Yeah. But I think, uh, you know, and this is why in the academy, moderation and temperance are virtues. They're ways of qualifying that impulse. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I think that's exa exactly right. And, but, you know, and I, I, I do think like Quarrel, for example, is a film about excess. It's like a film when, you know, lots of Fassbinder's film have very, very extreme situations, whether they're very dramatic, histrionic, um, people get very drunk, they get very upset, they get very, very carried away. You know, there is no limit. And I think the the scene in Quirrell that the sun never really goes down, like on this kind of cough syrup hallucination, right? There's no end to this day or this night, right? Day and night become the same. Um, you know, sex and violence become the same. <laughs> Brothers become the same. You know, you end up in this kind of, you know, night in which all... Uh, Cows are black, <laughs> or all men are gay. Um, you know, as uh, as uh, the German idealist didn't quite say. Um, but yeah, so so I think this principle of differentiation or the discipline inaugurates uh, a differentiation, like between right, as you say, whether it's mind and body, body and world, men and women, uh, order and chaos. You know, it, there has to be a, divi a dividing principle that then is predicated on an idea of order or hierarchy or structure or system. And we live in a really disordered universe now in many ways. It's very, very hard to establish order, um, I think. And I, this question of moderation, you know, is, is somehow the question, if you like. It's extremely hard to live moderately, I think, in a culture which is very immoderate. And at any point you can kind of get tipped into doing something too much, you know, like whatever it is, you know, you can get hooked yeah. on games, food, booze, drugs, sex, you know, everything becomes potentially pathological. Yeah. One thing I wanted to throw in before we finish yeah. up, this idea of, of criminality and Janae being a criminal. And so one of the things we've talked about is, is Janae treats homosexuality as a kind of criminal activity, but Janae is a criminal who loves criminality and is drawn to it and you know, kind of thinks it's great and has an important <laughs> role to play in the world. I think that is the interpretation yes. that we ultimately have to come down to here. Uh, Janae, yeah, sure, it's criminal, but criminality is, is, is great. It has a role to play. Uh, and I was thinking back to, you know, in Plato's Republic, there's this discussion of the drones. The drones are these, these men who are propertyless and who don't have anything to do. And so they become the engines of political change because they, you know, the drones with stings become evildoers. And it's because they become evildoers that the oligarchy, the system, which is dominated by money, cannot sustain itself in the long run. And if you didn't have the drones and you didn't have their criminality, then you could get stuck with oligarchy and you could get stuck with a bunch of rich people who aren't really any good and just value money and don't care about anything. 
But because these rich people come at the price of drones and the drones are willing to do criminal things, that keeps the cycle of regimes going, which causes it to go into democracy and then tyranny and then come back around again. And it's only because you have the drones and the people willing to do the criminality in the situation of profound inequality that the thing keeps moving. They go. And so I, I, yeah. Amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, it's like, it's like the anarchists say, be gay, do crimes. You know, this is this is where we must conclude with the, uh, the great. But but it has a it has a role to play. It has a yeah. role to play. It's not something that you can just. You know, if nobody is ever willing to break the law, then if they just ban trade unions, then nobody can do anything. If they just say all strikes are illegal, then nobody will do anything. There has to be some potentiality in people to break the law in some situation or other. Yeah, I mean, even even Locke says this. I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, um, the right to rebel. Of course, Locke says it. But what's cool is that maybe Plato says it. I see. <laughs> Plato, I see. who actually has respect for order and the yeah. good and values apart from individual autonomy. Fair, fair point. <laughs> Not meaning to rubbish Locke too severely. But, no, no. <laughs> uh, anyway, we're at about an hour, so we're going to go do the B-side for our Patreon listeners. But whether you're staying or going, thank you so much for listening. and Have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye.